Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. All right, good day, everybody. Welcome to another uh, Faith Seeking Understanding, the, uh, this episode, uh, the program Calmly Considered. I'm Alan Bevere. I am your host. I am a retired professor, Bible moth, theologian in exile, and seeming more in exile every day, and a peddler of hope. I'm the self-appointed Anselmo Canterbury Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture here at Faith Seeking Understanding University, a totally made-up university, but we are all, where we are all invited to ponder profound things free at charge. And my conversation partner every month is Michael. Can I have a Super Bowl ring to cruise? Yes. He's also the Grand <laughs> Chair of Theology. Um, and or, or, uh, economics and public theology here at FSUU. Well, Michael, you were a pretty happy guy Sunday night. Yep, that was pretty exciting. It was it was that cool. run at the end that Patrick Mahomes made on that dippy <laughs> ankle was really impressive. I gotta say. Yeah, it was uh, lots of determination, lots of grit. I think they said afterwards he realized he couldn't cut to the right or left, but if he could run straight ahead that yeah uh, he could do that I've, I've since seen a replay of the play that's kind of high up and from behind yeah and they show creed humphrey who's the center and and you if you look at him he's got his left hand down on the ball he's looking to his left and to his right to the to the line beside him he puts his right arm behind him and flashes mahomes five fingers meaning we've got all five covered which is a signal for you can run if you want to because we we, uh. we got them all uh, he's, he's looking at, at the, at the defensive yeah. lineup and he says, we can do it. So sure enough, Mahomes steps back, gives a chance, a couple chances for the, the lineman to get positioned, you know, to get her in position just right. And then boom, he takes off right by Humphrey. Um, it, it's uh pretty cool to watch. Yeah. It was a good game. It was a good Super Bowl. Uh, Philadelphia played well. And uh, what did they ever hurts was just amazing. Some of the passes that they caught that the Eagles caught. Yeah. Yeah. Four, was, five of them. I was just like, why? How do you do that? Uh, yeah. yeah, it was just like watching a good game. It was a good game. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So anyway, well, we've got to move on to other things. Yep. Social Security um, and Medicare will be our focus. We're going to do Social Security. Um, it, I thought we should do it and, and not only kind of go through the realities of it and the future of these uh, important uh, programs in our country, but also talk a little bit about the issue of social contract and societies and what we owe it each other. I think I've right. always said again, I'll say it again. I'm in a, I say it because I'm in a minority on this among Christians. And that <laughs> is I seeking the common good is not the same thing as doing kingdom work. Um, right. some, most Christians think any good work is kingdom work. I disagree. Having mm -hmm. said that, I do think Christians should seek the common good. Uh, right. with our neighbors, regardless of their faith convictions or the lack thereof. 
Um, and so we want to talk about a little bit about that too. But so let's talk social security. So so uh, President Biden had a State of the Union address. I, I mean, I got to say this, Michael. I don't watch States of the Union anymore. I, yeah. I watched them years ago, regardless of who was president, whether I right. was that person or not. But, you know, they, I don't know. After, I mean, when you get older, I guess you just get like, okay, president, rah, rah, rah. And yeah. this side, rah, rah, rah. And the other side doesn't right. stand. And, and uh, of course, there were some antics, right? Yeah. By a few, a handful of uh um, persons. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tempted to be snarky here, but I'm not going to do it. Um, but I just don't watch it because I just don't think there's much to it anymore. However, having said that, when the president speaks, it matters. And right. so, uh, and so President Biden has spoken on Social Security, and we've had some re- couple of Republican proposals and things like that. So, before we kind of get into those specifics, let's talk about the overview because there's always worry about social security and of course by extension medicare always always concern about the solvency of social security and you know will it be there for my children for example right right so michael give us a little overview of that and projections and how they do projections and what are some of the things that happen or can happen to uh, continue the life of this of this important retirement uh, fund. Right. Well, I think the first thing to realize is that every year they do an analysis. The, the government does an analysis of the uh, sustainability of each of these programs, Social Security, the various uh, Medicare box sort of things that they do to uh, to raise the money and spend it on Medicare, that type of thing. Um, and what they're looking at is assuming all things stay the same and where they are in the given year they're doing the analysis and you project that forward, then they can say in X many years, then the program either flourishes or becomes insolvent. It can no longer cover the cost that it, that it has. I can remember in high school in the 1970s hearing how Social Security wasn't going to be there in 10 years or we wouldn't have Social Security in um, I, I, that has been a recurring thing through my entire life, going back over 50 years, is that Social Security is on the brink of bankruptcy by somebody. I mean, somebody's always making that case. What all it's saying is, is that if things continue the way they are, then you have insolvency. Demographics change, economies change, uh, adjustments have to be made. I think it was 1983 that they made a big adjustment. Um, 65 has been the retirement age uh, for those that were older. For most of us baby boomers, I think the average is going to be around 66. And for those coming after the baby boomers, the final retirement age, which will invest is 67. I, I think mine's 66 in a couple of months or something like that. Um, and what that did by, by extending that distance out for uh, when you fully uh, receive the money, it stretches the money further. So the question then becomes going forward, the issue is not so much that the population is aging, it's that we, in terms of having more old people, the issue is, is that we're not having young people at a fast enough rate. And so what you end up is having what they call the dependency ratio, the number of people that are under 15, the people that are over 65 grouped together as one group dependents, and then those that are 15 to 65 years old that are working. 
and the ratio you want to have enough workers to be able to support those people that are independent in in dependent situations and that that ratio is now becoming more lopsided so i think it's i'm trying to remember what the year was i want to say it was 2030 something i can't remember the exact year 2034 i think there you go that's it 2034 yeah. they're projecting now that that's when social security would become insolvent so there are several different things that that can happen uh right now we have a cap on social security payments you only pay it i think on the first hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars something like that of income that you get that actually increases this year is my understanding uh from past legislation uh it will increase to one hundred sixty thousand dollars. so that there is a cap there on how what uh, portion of your salary you pay uh, social security tax on if you were to simply do away with a cap and you just had people pay social security on all income that they get uh, the estimates are that that would do away with upwards of two-thirds of the the shortfall that you would have in another 10 years so you would have that that would cure the problem itself the other thing is is to move the age out a little bit in terms of when you get fully funded for your social security. So maybe it becomes 67 or 66 and a half or uh, 67, well, I guess actually it's gonna be 67 now. So be 67 and a half, maybe moving on up closer to 68. Some combination of that would work. The other issue is simply raising the amount that is taken for social security from our paychecks to slightly increase that to balance it. So all three of those, things are options some and some mix of those is what's likely to occur and that's what we've been doing for generations the the idea is is that this is a a long-term investment and just as with a person's personal investments based on what their goals are and how much money they're getting you keep coming back you keep revisiting it every so often and you tweak it and adjust it to make it balance for for what you're going to have in the future and that's all that's happening here. There's no great crisis. There's no great, it's all about to collapse. Um, we're, you know, uh, this, and that, and the same is essentially true with Medicare. Medicare is a little bit different, but it's the same sort of thing. We've got an aging population. As we get past that work dependency ratio being a little out of balance, it will come back into a little more balance later in the century. So it will, it will balance out some, but in the short term, we'll have to do some things like either find ways to cut costs in healthcare or possibly do modest increase to the Medicare uh, uh, amount that's withheld. I think it's 1.4%, I think, of paychecks that are helping Medicare. And I, I think I heard that if, it, if you raised it to 1.8%, that that would cover uh, whatever shortfalls that they think are likely to occur anytime in the 21st century. So, and, and, and in polling, it shows that vast majority of Americans would prefer to have small increases in their taxes as opposed to losing benefits when they are older and need social security and need medicare uh, in their older age uh, so yeah it'll be it'll be some combination of those but neither of the programs are on the verge of collapse or you know uh, th there's no there's no crisis yeah michael you would never win election to public office you <laughs> realize that you're too calm yeah. and reasonable uh, yeah. Because uh, good politicians, well, I should say good politicians, politicians that get elected and reelected are good at sure. manufacturing a crisis, right? right? 
right. it's got to be the hunter at the door. And if you don't reelect me, they will, right? Right. So, oh, Michael, just, you know, anyway. So <laughs> just I just want to let you know in case you had any, any uh, thoughts about the future in politics, you probably should just forget it. Well, somebody said to me once, jokingly said, you should run for president. And I said, why do you hate me so much? Yeah, I know. Somebody <laughs> said to me in another church years ago that I pastored, uh, said, you know, you really ought to think about running for town council. And I said, I get enough politics in the church. Why in the world would I step into Right? Yeah. All right. Well, so let me ask you a couple questions here in reference to some of the stuff that you've said. So, so we've got some fixes. There are fixes right. in the words and it will happen. Uh, the article that uh, we read on this basically said no politician on their watch is going to let Social Security dry up. Absolutely. Right? If you want to make sure you're out of office, just do that. Right. So let's talk about some of the fixes. I have heard people say, usually people whose politics tend to be more left, uh, look, at, let's just get rid of this cap on earnings. And so, you know, if you're if, if you're making a billion dollars a year, you should pay. 15%, assuming you're self-employed, if you're a billionaire, right. uh, you should pay 15% on that, first of all. Second, you're not going to miss it. You know, right. I mean, you're not going to miss 15% of a billion dollars, but that's pretty good chunk of change for the for the trust fund. What are your right. thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a question of what how do you how do you frame what these programs are? The idea that the um, Social Security is, at least in concept, it's supposed to be you paying in for, yeah. from your wages in order to receive your uh, retirement income when you retire. It's not a program in which we just collect a big pot of money and then figure out how to distribute it to people that are older and, and need money. So it's a, it's a little bit different category. And so if you're just talking about doing an increase in taxes on wealthy people in order to fund Social Security or Medicare, you're changing the nature of what those programs are set up to do. That's a different question about, I mean, that, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong or that it's good or bad. I'm just saying that now you're into a, a situation where we're redefining how we're going to do the programs and do we want to yeah. do it that way. So I think the, the question is, is are people paying in enough in order to cover um, what benefit that they are going to receive? That makes sense. Yeah, that, makes, that makes sense. It's a way of saying also that all of us, and I will be receiving Social Security in a year. Right. Uh, it's, it's a way of saying uh, we've all got some skin in the game here. And so this is important. You know, right. I remember someone saying to me years ago, a friend of mine uh, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but she was American living in Britain. And we used to we used to talk about stuff like taxes and health care. And, right. like and, you know, it, I, I believe it's true, Michael, that approximately the lowest 50 percent of earners in the country really don't pay any taxes. It, or yeah. something. Federal income tax, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that the tax burden is 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 uh, certainly the rich the rich do pay more right mm -hmm. right even though I know people say they don't they do pay more and then the right. middle class pays and she said to me one time she said you know in England and I don't know the taxes over there so I was just taking her word for it she said and she was talking because of course she did think the rich should pay more as well she said we pay higher taxes in England. But she said, you know, even the poor pay something, even right. if it's just a minuscule amount, 
they pay right. something because it's a way of saying to them, this matters to you too. The country right. matters to you too. And what the country right. does matters to you too. So right. you may pay, you may pay a penny on the dollar. Right. But but you're going to pay. Right. Whereas, whereas we have basically fixed the tax system so that even those who are, you know, in the 50% less really don't pay anything. I mean, I thought that was just an interesting thought. It's right. by the way, it's very, it's it's very capitalist. <laughs> very, very free market kind of thing in a way. Um, oh, there's a communitarian aspect to it as well, too. The idea that everybody's part well, of Well, this is true. This yeah. is true. Yeah. This is so true. yeah. Yeah. So so but it's just it was just an interesting thought. And I just right. throw that at, at you from what you said about social security that in some way we all pay into this because this is for all of us, but it's but you know, I'm paying into it because it's for me too. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's the idea that it that it's uh, it, it's not it's not welfare in the sense that we've talked about welfare in the past, where we we uh, uh, raise money and then help those who are somehow um, have not been able to to care for themselves, and so now we're we're giving them benefits uh, to to help them, but because to help meet the shortfall that they weren't able to do for themselves. Whereas Social Security is framed as this idea that you're paying in and it's to be paid back to you. It's not welfare in, yeah. in that sense. And I think that that's, do you want to lose that, that concept if yeah. you're going to talk about raising money from billionaires in order to pay for Social Security? Um, yeah. That's interesting. But man, and mind you, I'm not, I'm not advocating not taxing billionaires. <laughs> that's not my point. You, there may be good reason to tax billionaires more, but... Uh, funding Social Security and Medicare may not be the the direction for that that yeah. to increase to go to. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's talk a little bit about raising the retirement age because, um, of course, that's been done already. Right. Uh, when when uh, Social Security first started in the I want to say the forties, don't is it the forties basically? Uh, um, well, I mean, I think the initial legislation was passed in the thirties, and then it had in the thirties. Okay. Yeah, mid 30s, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Retirement age, full retirement age was 65. The average person, the average worker lived another five, six, seven years. Right. 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 Uh, in general. And now, of course, um, the the median age of death has has risen. Right. Um, I, I tell I tell people just my own little anecdotal experience. that when I started in the ministry in 1984, it was rare. It was rare to have parishioners in their 90s. Yeah. And when I retired, yeah. that is no longer the case. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah. No longer the case. You got people in their 90s and people in their 80s, late 80s. Yeah. And um, so in it, you know, it does make sense. So so now you're, I mean, my father-in-law retired. He 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 was able to retire at 57 or 58. He was able to retire right. early. He's still living. He's 93. I mean, right. he's had a whole career of retirement. Right. Um, I kind of hope to have that too, but we'll see. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it does make sense, doesn't it, to say to raise the retirement age is a good way to help fund this for the future because we're just living longer and we're getting paid longer. Right. Well, part of it is that that people are living longer, so they live longer after 65. Uh, I think another piece of that that fits into that as well is that back, you know, 60, 70 years ago, you had basically two workers 
for every dependent that there was in society. And by mid-century, if, if we're not already there, we're getting close to it, it's going to be down to one worker for, for yeah. every dependent in society. So not only are people living longer, but you're also having fewer people as a proportion of the population to help support those, those people that are dependent. Uh, and I, I would add, I think that there's, there's some other things that are, uh, we, we talk about people getting older and 65, but I think it's also true that a number of people are working longer after they're 65, either out of necessity, but for many, just out of, that's what they want to do. They, they want to keep working. I know people that are in their early 70s that are, that are continuing to work without needing to. It's not a financial uh, challenge. It's just that that's what they want to do. So that, that begins to shift numbers as well. I, I think increasing the age, obviously, is, is one calculation from a uh, mathematical standpoint that would help. One challenge that I have heard, though, is that if you continue to raise the age of the, what do I want to say, the point at which you can take your, your fully vested Social Security amount, Right now, most people who are poor, the poor, the poor the person is, the more likely they are to take their social security at 62. And so that means that when it was, I think the retirement age is 66. If you take your money at 62, that's about a 25% loss of money that you would have gotten if you'd waited four more years and taken that. It's gonna go up to 67 is almost there. When it is 67 and you take that at 62, then it's going to be a 30% uh, loss in overall benefits. If you start pushing that up to 68, you're talking well into the 30%, you know, 30, 35% range of money. So in some ways it penalizes the poor more and you say, well, raise the 62. Well, yeah, that would financially make sense, but that's one more year that people who don't have money uh, go without being able to access their social security. So there is there is that downside um, that it ends up becoming uh, people that are poor end up getting less of it, and those who can afford to keep working and wait till they're however old, sixty six or sixty seven, can take their full benefit. Um, so that that's one downside to raising the age. Yeah, you know it's real interesting for me, Michael, because I I mean I retired at sixty uh, sixty, right. Um, and my, you know, my pension is a decent pension. So, right. But um, I, I'm going to take. I turn 62 in a year. I'm going to take mine. Right. 62, just because I keep thinking to myself, what am I waiting for? You know. Right. <laughs> right. Well, so, so you know, everybody, you know, you get these arguments from a financial standpoint. Wait till full retirement age, and I'm like, hey, man, I want it now while I can travel right, yeah. and stuff I want to do. You know, right. because maybe in my if I make it to my late seventies, I'm not going to be doing that stuff, and so I just am not going to need the money. Right. So, That's so it, so it isn't just a raw dollars kind of a thing. It's, it's but you know, it, it's it's what it's you know, it's also the quality of life and the dollars that you have. That right. does present a problem though if you're if you're health impaired, doesn't it? And yes, it does. If you've got disabilities, health impaired, you've got issues that uh, are preventing you from being productive in the workforce. And you need to take money earlier, and and you're exactly right. There are people that are that are quite wealthy that take it when they're 62. It's it's not a a one you know one for one correlation up and down the economic scale, but the tendency is is that the poor people are the more the more the earlier they tend to take their um, oops uh, excuse me here a moment. 
getting a phone call interference on that <laughs> uh, for just me there on my iPad. You're just, you're just in demand, Michael. I, I'm in demand. It's, it's my next my next video call. I got to get on to it. No. <laughs> um, the, uh, I forgot where I was saying. Oh, you were talking about the poor and, and not right. working and all that. Right. Yeah. So if you don't have that, the, the uh, incentive is going to be to take it at 62. But the, the incentive will be stronger to take it at 62 than if you have more money, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Anyway, I, I just say that that's one piece of it. Um, it seems to me that th this this is personal preference. I can I could debate this and be persuaded different directions, but my I think where I would sit right now, it seems to me that the best ways to possibly raise it was to is to raise the cap or do away with the cap in terms of Social Security, and or simply increase modestly the amount that we pay into Social Security. Uh, in order to to fund it so those those seem to me to be the ones that i would go then the age thing would work as well um and, and all of them have their pluses and minuses in terms of the, the yeah they do they all have, you know because i was thinking as you were saying about raising the cap a little bit you know uh you know as someone who throughout his vocation was self-employed for social security purposes right um, that's a lot of that's a lot of money every month because <laughs> if you're self-employed you know you have to pay your own yeah your you own do tax. And it's cheap. <laughs> yeah. but you know i mean i i do you know you know again it's it's what we go back to and that's what you've said to me time and time again economics is always a trade-off right and and you know you do something over here that helps well that's also going to have a downside somewhere right and uh, you know you just can't get around that that's why i always like politicians because everything if you elect me everything will be rosy and wonderful yeah, yeah right and, well uh, let's, uh being here from kent city area independence down the road harry truman one of my favorite quotes was him he said he always wished he'd had a one one-armed economist because he said every time he'd asked him something they would tell him it would work and he says but on the other hand and yeah. uh, <laughs> But on the other hand, here's the problem. You give me the downside of this as well. Yeah, too. my brother worked in a, in a my brother worked in a, a business for a business for a while that uh, trained in software, new software, and their business boomed when the economy was bad because everybody was coming back to get retrained. Right. right? Yeah. So right. when the economy was bad, you know, they were making money hand over fist. And then the when business. the economy picks up, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden they're having trouble finding people to take their to take their training. So right. yeah. you know, right. it's just it's just it's just one of those things. So let's talk a little bit about uh, moving to the issue of social contract and what we owe each other. I mean, you know, right. one of the things that and I said it to you before we went on this thing is that you know whether we like it or not we human beings are born into communities and by virtue of being born into communities we owe the community because if the community is going to flourish if the community and and that then includes us too who are a part of the community right there's just things we have to owe, owe each other so when someone so when someone says you know i love the extreme libertarians taxation is theft well you know right. Right. I mean, right. you know, um, we're we're all born into this contract, right? Whether whether we signed on the dotted line or not. So it seems to me. Now, how a society arranges that and how right. we determine what we owe each other is always up for discussion. The best way to go about that is always 
up for right. conversation. Um, but it seems to me that there's something about Social Security and Medicare. Um, and whether it can be done better or not, that's a good question. Uh, or a little differently, that's a good question. But the fact of the matter is, part of the reason these things are here, I think, is because we should have a sense of responsibility toward one another. Right. Um, and, and, and of course, I would say that even the Bible tells us that. And that even, you know, you get admonitions in the New Testament to, you know, uh, do good to all and et cetera, et cetera. Honor the king. Doesn't mean you have to obey the king, but you got to honor the right. king. Uh, right. You know, there's, it, it, it seems to be implicit there that we, we do have this um, obligation to one another. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think there, there obviously is an obligation, I think, that people have to each other. I think where the debate often gets into the politics where you're talking about libertarians versus progressives and everybody else uh, in between, uh, what role does the government play in helping to meet that obligation? I think that a lot of the libertarian folks would argue that, of course, we're supposed to care for the vulnerable and the people who are dependent, but we should be doing that through private associations and through um, non-governmental uh, operations where there's also a sense of community accountability and uh, sort of a, a community uh, connection in terms of the people that are being helped as opposed to abstract, uh, inefficiently run, uh, centralized government yeah. uh, entities trying to, to distribute money. And I'm, I'm trying, to cat, trying to cast it in that, their, their way of framing things. And I think that the on the other side, there's the issue that that is a, a worthy ambition and it's something that we should uh, always encourage is people looking out for each other. But there's a lot of human frailty and a lot of um, uh, inefficiency and inequality that happens when it is just left to uh, people to operate on what should be their moral uh, obligations yeah. and just leaving it there uh, because people frequently don't op operate. And so, so having a governmental approach to this that to take, give some basic care for medical care and for income is a way of of having a little more objective and a little less dependent on the whims and the uh, quixotic uh, <laughs> uh, decisions that people make in various communities around uh, around the country and uh, so th that's a debate and I don't have a, a specific answer I think there are issues to be considered in any program that weighs those kind of questions um, when we're talking about it. I, I, am, I am a little skeptical of some of the progressive uh, ideas that happen from time to time and that there just seems to be this sense that government can fix anything, that if we, yeah. just, we just centralize it, give enough money to it, then it can all be solved. And I think that that's, that's inappropriate. I think the extreme libertarian point of view that there is no role for government is also uh, not a, a helpful. Yeah way of looking at things either and, and yeah and, if I, okay, yeah, and I, I think i would make the case that um human history has demonstrated it's not an either or it's a both and kind of thing and, right you know, i was interested when you talk about first of all by the way what your comments at first about accountability is a great case for federalism because yeah. <laughs> right. because politicians on the local level are always more accountable by necessity yeah. by just the way right just by being so close, they're right. accountable in ways that, you know, uh, politicians on Capitol Hill just are not. 
Right. And and so, you know, they're so it's it's one of degree. But I always, you know, again, this is a generalization. So and generalizations are good, but but they're also generalizations. Right. Is that my frustration with a lot of progressives on the left is you're right. They do seem to think government is almost good at everything. Right. And fix everything. Whereas more conservatives on the right think that government is always incompetent and should right. not have any role, particularly in regulating anything. Right. And, you know, to which for me, I, I think it's a both and, you know, um, Bill Bennett, conservative Bill Bennett, mm-hmm. I heard him say a long time ago in an interview that we just have to, we ha- what we're really trying to figure out is what is it that the private sector can do well and what is it that the government can do well. Right. And make sure yeah. that what the private sector does well, we let them do it. And whatever the government right. does, well, we let them do it. That's really the debate, isn't it? Um, right. No, in a sense. Finding right. the best place and the best hands to put these things into. And by the way, hopefully have a cooperative effort between the two as well. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and, I'll, and I'll piggyback on this. There's the moral question that vulnerable people in our society need to be taken care of. But going to a, a, a less, quote, moral question and just the pure economics of, of uh, what, what should be done, I think what you find in Scandinavian countries and in, in some European countries, and there, there are problems with, with the models that are there, but I think the, the assumption is if people, if people are to be productive, they have to have a certain level of stability and um, groundedness in order to be able to be productive. And that's the reason that you often find the robust welfare systems that you find in places like Sweden and Denmark. And if you listen and read the rationales, the issue is that they're not being altruistic. Their assumption is, is that people who are, are well cared for, who have basic needs that are taken care of, have the freedom to be more productive. And if they are more productive, that's better for the overall economy and helps grow the economy and helps the whole society flourish, rather than leaving it to the whims and uh, inconsistencies of a private system to try to take care of people. The other, the other issue is that if you're talking about um, somebody who ends up having dependents in their family and there is no safety net in order to take care of it, that means that that family, the people in that family now have to be the ones who are doing the caregiving and, and getting the money in order to take care of that person, which then also pulls away from their productivity to be able to, to work in society. And the ability to have some basic needs met without you know, each individual having to do the bulk of the caregiving, spreading that, that caregiving uh, need for resources and for help, spreading that out a little bit allows everybody to be more productive rather than um, just leaving it to the whims of individuals to to figure it out. So I I think from an economic standpoint, you could make the case that some level of minimal care for people that are dependent is a better economic structure than one that simply leaves it to the whims of, of people to figure out if they're gonna care for people or not. So. Yeah, and 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 I, I mean, I think we should be able to gr- agree that uh, diabetics shouldn't have to ration insulin. Right. Yeah. Right? Like I, mean, that. I mean, seriously, and that right. there's something wrong. You know, I mean, if diabetics have to, because uh, it, you know, and I'm diabetic, but 
but uh, incidence of di diabetes and when diabetes is not in, uh, in control, you are not productive. Uh, right. You feel terrible. Right. Uh, you know, and there's just something wrong when people have to ration life-saving medicine. And, right. Um, so we need to fix that. And we can right. debate how to fix that, but we need to fix it. So, you know, I'm always, right. the other thing when we speak of these kinds of issues, Michael, that's always interested me, me too, is that there are, and we did talk about, I think we did talk about healthcare one time in one of our episodes, but there are different models in Europe, right? Yeah, They're right. Not all single payer. It's not, it's not all like the UK. Almost none of them are. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I personally would prefer that whatever we do is not to have single payer, but. Right. I will tell you that I have friends in England and Canada that love their healthcare, right. and right. and even though they'll tell you, yeah, there are problems. But what bothers me is, and I don't care what system you're talking about, you know, what we do is is we make the the, the perfect the enemy of the good. So right. we find places where let's just take the UK for example, where the single single payer system where you know things aren't working, certain places it's not working the way it should. Right. And or the way we would like it. And someone points that out as an indictment of the entire system or, you know, even in, in the United States. You know, I still remember when Hillary Clinton was running for president, the famous example she used of someone dying in an emergency room or something. And, you know, you always take that one event, you, right. you, use, you take the anecdotal event and you hold that up as to say the whole thing's a failure. Right. You know, right. And yep. you're not going to you're just not going to continue to have productive conversation if if that is what, you know, I personally would like to have the conversation, put all right. the options on the table and see, because I do think I do think our healthcare system does need some work. I, I just right. know too many people who are who are rationing their medicine, who are. Um, uh, what was I going to, I was going to say something that went out the window on me. Um, yeah. I forgot to take my memory medication. Who <laughs> <laughs> are, you know, uh, people who, uh, you know, don't go to the doctor, even though they've got symptoms. Right. That, that they should attend to. And I'm just, and, or, oh, I know what it is, is that you got people who are in long-term cancer treatments going bankrupt or spending their life savings. Right. And I just look at that and I say, Michael, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that's not right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I, I sort of think in terms of the general you know, 50,000 foot view, my, my, my uh, view is that we should have, that there should be universal health care, that everybody should have uh, some basic level of care, and that there should be a substantial market component into the health care that occurs, because I think it's the market that often disciplines costs uh, in the system. And what we have in many ways, in my estimation, the United States is kind of the worst of multiple worlds, which is we do not have universal health care. Although I, I should say the number of uninsured is now at a, a record low, uh, and particularly in the past two or three years, it's the enrollment in uh, Affordable Care Act, health care, that type of thing has really increased in recent years. So I think it was, was it 15% of the population or something like that did not have uh, healthcare 10 years ago, and it's down to like 8%, I think, that don't have it. So, I mean, we're moving in a good direction, yeah. but still, universal healthcare, but I also think it needs to have a market component, and what we have now 
in our healthcare system is a weird hodgepodge of chaos in which nobody can figure out yeah, doctors, health providers, patients, nobody knows what anything actually costs because of the, the way the things are, the prices are negotiated on various treatments and procedures, that type of thing. So there's no way you can make an informed decision about yeah. uh, how, you're, how you're going to work that. So a greater increase in market as well as universal coverage. And I, I think that we have, like, like you said, we mentioned this before, there are countries that mandate universal coverage, but then have health insuring uh, companies provide health insurance and compete with each other in terms of the type of health insurance they're gonna provide. And so people that are looking for health insurance, the citizens have to have health insurance and they will subsidize the people at the very bottom uh, of the income ladder who don't have money. And then it, the subsidy decreases as you go up with the people paying in at the top. And uh, that way you get some market competition. That's just one model, but it's- Yeah, no, I, I, like I said, you know, you and I both, you know, we like free markets and that right. we make the case for um, that they do, they do have brought us in the modern world prosperity um, and right. helped a lot of people. Um, in those systems, though, the government does provide some guardrails, don't they? I mean, right. They do, yeah. 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 You got you to set parameters. And that's that's true in all sorts of industries, though. Uh, markets yeah, are never perfect for I shouldn't say markets are never perfect. I, any given commodity or any given product, there are intricacies into the nature of the product, into the nature of the way people make decisions that require guardrails on a lot of different things. Um, yes. And that, that's just part of the way that the world functions. And so, yeah, there, there would be guardrails around that. But something, uh, my, my preference is not for a wide open healthcare system where everybody's on their own and to, to get their health insurance and it's not for the single payer. I, I'm not a fan of either of those. And I think there are many workable alternatives that are probably somewhere in the middle. But as we've talked before, whether it's immigration or whatever issue it is, the issue is what's useful to the politicians, not the solution. Um, yes. And so sure. it gives you a way, like just as we talked about Social Security, Medicare, all the scary stuff that we talked about at the beginning, you know, though there's, these are not going away. There's not a big crisis, but it's good political uh, theater for being able to try to recruit votes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The solutions, politicians' job is not the solution. It's to keep us. It's to keep us afraid. Yeah. Um, and and nervous about things. So keep them hey, in, uh, in reference to the healthcare thing, would you be in favor? How do you feel about? Because right now, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of insurance is uh, uh, tied to employers. Right. Right. Uh, what do you think about that? Is there, a, is there a place for that in the future? Should we just figure, dump that and do something different? What's your thoughts? I have never liked the fact that it's tied to employment. It's just, uh, I think that was an accident of history that it ended up becoming that way. And finding some way to unwind that would be, uh, is, I think, has to be a goal as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, Michael, um, what else do we want to say on this? That so, so, so anybody who is concerned about the future of Social Security, um, rest assured, um, don't panic. Uh, it'll be there. Um, some changes here and there, but it will be there. So that's right. I guess that's a good word for the day. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, I also got to tell you, by the way, Michael, anybody I've ever known who's retired, who's on Medicare, likes it. I mean, again, oh, yeah. there are 
they'll tell you there are problems. They'll tell you what the problems yeah. are. But nobody, right. nobody on Medicare says, you know, I always say that sometimes the naysayers are the people that don't benefit from some of this stuff. Well, sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, like the Affordable Care Act. Now, the Affordable Care Act's got its problems. And it really, right. uh, one of the things that never happened because of the polarization in Congress, unfortunately, is, you know, Congress could continue to be making it better. Right. Um, but but they can't do that because, because you know, to to. For some to be willing to make it better is to say the other side won, right? right. Or the other side. So we can't do that. Um, I, I will say, uh, I will say on the Affordable Care Act thing, though, that one of the things that is happening, in particular the past three years, there's been this sudden upsurge in yeah. number of people that are enrolling through the Affordable Care Act. People are basically voting with their dollars, <laughs> with their yeah. decisions for what they want, and that eventually has impact on what Congress. Yeah. Has to yeah, do yeah, and, and my point, I, yeah, my longer point, uh, uh, when I did my Edith Bunker and went off subject, um, <laughs> my, uh, my larger point is, is that even though the Affordable Care Act could be improved, it really ultimately has stood the test and it has helped people. I have a, I have a citizen yeah. who would not have insurance if it wasn't for the Affordable Care Act, just right. would not, and who has health issues. Right. So, um you know, uh, and and um, if you think that uh, it's uh, the Affordable Care Act is a disaster and needs to be replaced, I'm listening to the alternative, which I have right. to hear. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. 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 Well, hopefully. Anyway, well, this has been a good conversation, Michael, and uh, appreciate your insights on this. And uh, if you ever ever do... Uh, if you ever do run for office, I'll be your campaign app manager. I can come up with I can come up with some real catchy slogans. You, you'll uh, join me in a suicide pack, is what Michael. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Michael Cruz. He's never met a crisis he's believed in. <laughs> That's right. There you go. That's right. All right. Good enough. All right. Well, thanks, Michael. And thanks for joining us, everybody. This is Face Seeking Understanding, and I am Alan Bevere. And a reminder to you that the patron saint of Faith Seeking Understanding uh, University is um, Anselm of Canterbury, who said, I do not uh, understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. So friends, keep seeking. Amen. Yeah.